0: Are you listening to this on Spotify right now? You should be on Spotify. You can listen to all your favorite artists and podcasts in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now on Spotify. You can follow your favorite podcast. So you never miss an episode. Premium Spotify users can download episodes to listen to offline. So wherever you are, you can hear me. It'll be like we're on that vacation in the mountains together. And of course, you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends on Instagram. If you haven't done so already, be sure to download the Spotify app and search for Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. Or you can browse to find new podcasts in the tab marked Your Library. Oh, and make sure to follow me so you never miss an episode of Be Reasonable. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. Welcome to Be Reasonable. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. On election day in 2016, I spent the afternoon telling people we've got this and jabbed them as bedwetters for worrying about the possibility of what ended up becoming reality that night. Donald Trump was elected president. I was wrong. I could make an adequate attempt to convince you that my wrongness was a product of the wrongness of others, site reporters and polling agencies, or list inconsistencies of the sort that fuel conspiracy theories, in service of maintaining a narrative across a timeline in which reality proved quite a different story, if only I would accept it. But that would not be the truth, and even if it were, my choice to put my faith in a certain point of view, a certain perspective, because of a certain belief I hope to maintain, disseminated to me by certain groups of people and organizations, was my responsibility I didn't have to go along with the comforting idea that everyone who said the opposite of my closely held narrative was stupid or malicious or ill-informed or worse. I did that on my own. Like many people in organizations in the wake of Trump's jolting victory, I took stock of my behavior prior to the election. Unlike most of the people in organizations on my side... Rather than doubling down on my own rightness, the sense of unfairness resulting from a defeat so distasteful and preposterous, I chose to figure out what the other side actually thought. It was clear to me then there was no way the narrative I had relied upon to inform my views could be correct in the face of a new reality. It couldn't be true that the other side really was all dumb and evil. Reality was unfolding in front of me in a way this narrative simply could not explain. It is easy when in the warmth of one comfortable bubble to assume the other bubble cannot see the real world. If only they could, they'd agree with us. Both bubbles think this. Media on both sides actively convinces us that this is the truth. But it is not. The rightness and righteousness we profess is too often based on a limited or downright distorted view of what the other side actually thinks. This is toxic on every level. In the months following Trump's election, I began consuming as much information from conservative outlets as I possibly could. I wanted to understand how people I knew to be thoughtful and decent could possibly defend the orange monster. How could anyone? What I found was not lunatic conspiracy theorizing like the Alex Jones Infowars style tinfoil hat stuff. I didn't find high-pitched screams about tyranny like you might on the Mark Levin show. What I found was not the Fox News-style sycophancy, the mainstream media and late-night talk show's highlight. I didn't find, for the most part, much of the childish and stupid owning the libs outside of the Daily Wire and Breitbart. Rather, I found true intellectuals from all fields supplying a vast wealth of knowledge that was interpreted on its own merits, encompassing a wide range of views, none of which I'd been exposed to in any meaningful way, not in college, aside from in my philosophy major, where ideas in the abstract actually had weight. Not in the media I consumed, MSNBC, CNN, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Slate, Huffington Post, etc and not in entertainment or popular culture. None of these institutions, institutions whose ostensible purpose was to educate and inform me, had ever presented the opposition in its true form ever given anyone or their arguments the benefit of the doubt. How can I, in good conscience, call a person terrible for believing something when I'm aware of only a fraction of what constitutes the belief in the first place? I know none of what about their life, their situation, or their point of view might make that belief valid. Not only did I find myself staring my own ignorance in the mirror, I became acutely aware of how many times I'd participated in the same sorts of distortion. None were clearer to me than when, in 2012, while supporting Obama, I played along with the supposed Romney scandals. Remember when we pretended that a binder full of women was a misogynistic slight and reminiscent of the way offshoot Mormon communities chose additional new wives for the men? And not an example of a man from an older generation in artfully describing the process by which his business had formalized their efforts and intents to source qualified female candidates for their open positions. Literally exactly what feminists have been wanting for years. Would it have been better if he said databases full of qualified female candidates? Was the fact that these women's resumes had three holes? Punch through their left side borders so they could be inserted into a binder where they would be kept on file so offensive that it outweighed the obvious intended good? Of course not, but no one on our side bothered asking themselves that, myself included. Why? <clears throat> Even though we knew what he meant, we saw a place where we could erect a fortress around the narrative we hoped to preserve, and we knew there was something we could exploit. The narrative is that Republicans are always doing everything they can to hide their evil racism, sexism, ismism from everyone. And it's our mission as thoughtful observers to find every sign of these underlying motivations and expose them to the world. This is an utterly insane, totally backward way of thinking. It presupposes the conclusion and then backfills support for it with whatever we can find, rather than building a complete picture based on the actual sum of its parts. Mitt Romney is now something of a hero on the left for being the lone Republican to vote in favor of an article of impeachment. This former misogynist religious zealot has been reshaped by the media into a sincere, thoughtful family man who's doing his duty by speaking against the administration. He may well be, but if he is, he's the same guy Joe Biden was referring to when he told a crowd of black Americans that, quote, they want to put you all back in chains. Unquote. There might be a world where this makes sense, but it's not one I have visited. The truth is that Mitt Romney has always been a political operator who will freely play to either side when it works. The deeper truth is that he is a real family man who is highly committed to his religious beliefs, crazy though I may find them. He seems to be fantastically adept at maximizing profit for his firm. The moral discussion about what Bain Capital does as a business is unnecessary. Mitt Romney is a relatively decent man with a high level proficiency in a field few of us could possibly master. That should have mattered. It didn't. If you think Trump has a cult, and I'd agree, would you really want to consider the ways you defended Obama when you felt pressed to do so, if you ever did? How many of us even found ourselves in intimate social gatherings with anyone who dared to say Obama was doing something wrong? I don't remember many of these in L.A., and it's not for lack of exposure. Was this due to Obama's unassailable perfection? And we're supposed to believe all Trump fans are evil? Why? They're exactly the same as we were. Hell, have you ever met a Bernie fan? If there's a substantial difference, it's not obvious or convincing outside your circle, trust me. But Trump believes in a dangerous ideology, you say. He's racist and sexist and, and, and. They say this while supporting an unreconstructed socialist. Dangerous ideology, you say? It's not as if they're more polite about it either. There is a point in our understanding where a view we have held for as long as we can remember begins to weaken and disintegrate. When this happens, we unavoidably see the world in a new way, and it's impossible to go back. The first time you become familiar with this feeling that you've been intentionally lied to and misled, you become open to the idea of your own wrongness. This happens to all of us in different ways at different points in our lives, and each one may as well be the first time, but the substance of each is the same. For most of us, this happens first with family or in relationships or friendships later in the institutions. It's a far rarer thing to be forced to substantially change the way we see the world. There's no reason it should have taken Trump for me to proactively inspect my own side for the faults I claim to hate. But it did nonetheless. I should have done it far earlier, but I missed the initial cue. I see it now. My first clue should have been when many of my when he first announced he was running, I was open to his candidacy. I'd listened to Bernie talk on radio shows and seen his public performances and appearances on The Daily Show and Bill Maher, but these venues always permitted Bernie essentially a free ride based on their ideological agreements with his positions. He wasn't challenged in a meaningful way because, of course, are you really against letting people die because they don't have health care? Does that seem like a rational question to you? If it does, I suggest you inspect that feeling. The argument boils down to, in essence, you must agree with my position or you are a person who supports innocent people dying. Is that how we should win arguments? Further, should that even be a morally acceptable way to act toward the members of your community? Carol has a different way she thinks healthcare should be handled because she's worried about socialism. So therefore, she thinks people without healthcare should die? Does that make any sense? Let me make it clearer still. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that it's a good argument when pro-life Republicans say that abortion is baby killing. Therefore, if you support a woman's right to choose, then you're in favor of killing babies. Understand that this is exactly the same as saying that all Trump supporters are racist or okay with supporting a racist. You're doing nothing more than loading a fresh round in a game of moral Russian roulette. Agree with me or you're the worst person in the world. How is this any way to live? I came to the understanding, which you don't have to share, but nonetheless should consider, that perhaps the man who spent 60 plus years as a fan of Karl Marx and Eugene Debs, ones who supported brutal communist dictators, yes, on actual video you can see on YouTube, and who never had an actual job until he began working in public service at age 40, might actually be the socialist he says he is. He has championed government takeovers of big business. He has terrible, unworkable solutions to nearly every problem, yet he's held up as a paragon of virtue, not on the merits, but because it's so easy to besmirch the character of anyone who speaks against him. If it's hard to see how this is exactly like Trump and his supporters, I cannot for the life of me understand why. The incredible backlash I faced in Hollywood in 2016, losing friendships and business opportunities simply for supporting Hillary Clinton and publicly communicating why I found Bernie just as offensive and dangerous as Trump, should have given me everything I needed, but it didn't quite do the trick. I was able to see who and what Bernie was without moving beyond the central narrative because that narrative had properly equipped me to see that Bernie's solutions didn't even work on a theoretical level, much less on an objective reality level. The numbers and the facts didn't get Bernie across the finish line. I didn't need to go further. The central narrative supplied the answers as it often does. It took a real shock to the system. I know the man in office is unfit for a great many of the duties required of him. Bernie Sanders is as well, in most of the same ways. That was never anything but obvious to me. What wasn't obvious is that Hillary Clinton is unfit for that office as well in perhaps a deeper, more pernicious way. And that way is the one people don't seem to understand. It's the hardest for a person who considers themselves, in some way, a liberal, to wrap their heads around. Hillary Clinton is, essentially, the perfect distillation of everything a huge portion of our country finds unacceptable about the government. The far left believes this as stringently as the right. Both believe their reasons are valid. I sympathize with them. Now. It has become commonplace in the midst of the current coronavirus crisis for people to not only excuse outright dishonesty, but to champion it. Prominent media figures are so mouth gapingly aghast that young people are still congregating in public, so scared about this sickness, that they're actively encouraging the government and their peers to do and say whatever is necessary to convince those people to stay inside. The morality of it's okay to lie if I can justify it is exactly the sort of motivated thinking they hate Trump for employing. These people either choose not to calculate the costs of dishonesty at all, or they do so in a vacuum. They proclaim that the only priority is eradicating coronavirus at all costs. Fine, but that would be a terrible priority. Priority number one is preserving our society while mitigating loss of life to whatever extent possible. These goals are necessarily at odds in these circumstances. It's not sufficient to say that loss of life from this sickness is the only thing at issue. It isn't. Are we expected to remain inside until the risk reduces to zero? That's not a realistic way to view the risk inherent in living. There are other ways to have one's life destroyed. Willfully destroying the economy to contain a virus absolutely and inarguably has the potential to cause a brand of destruction that, while different, should be no more acceptable. Realizing that there is a tipping point is not wanting people to die. It's just reality. One that you yourself accept on some level already. It has now become verboten to take note of the undeniable fact that there are trade-offs here. To assume that everyone denying this in public is simply ignorant of basic economics would be too kind. They must know that there is a point at which endless relief funding will run out, particularly without a fully functioning economy to support it. The economy isn't separable from morality, it is a part of it. Money for relief isn't plucked from the sky. Even now, we have people working and going about their lives in relatively normal ways. The vast majority of us are still using the fruits of their labor in one way or another. No, we don't go to bars or movies or sporting events, but our coffee shops are open, restaurants remain open for takeout, and drivers from Postmates are still delivering food for people staying inside their homes. If reducing contact to zero was our sole mission, wouldn't we be stocking up on non-perishable food and really not leaving at all? Ordering food from Postmates brings rise to a need for drivers and a need for at least one other, if not many other people to handle your food while cooking it. We have all reduced our impact to some extent, but very few of us have tried to reduce our impact to zero. The number of people who have is surely Less than the number of people posting memes and hateful messages about hashtag COVIDiots while remaining unconcerned about their overuse of delivery drivers or complaining about Amazon's ship times. Why? To win political points and satiate their followers' appetites for fear and blame. After all, how can the people screaming alone in their apartments feel okay unless everyone else is equally horrified? Our elected officials are making decisions about this trade-off in real time, whether or not we'd like to admit it. Consider, we've been told that essential businesses will remain open. Medical facilities, big box retail stores, grocery stores, first responders. Okay, but donut shops are open and corporate coffee chains. Why? I'm not disputing whether they are essential or not. I'm saying someone else did decide that. Those employees interacting with customers and with one another represented an acceptable risk taken in order to maintain that business's product availability to those who need it. Is this the safest possible path we could have taken? Of course not. Even simpler, consider the speed limit. It's set, ostensibly, at a point we deem balanced enough between our need to move about and our need to reduce auto deaths. Why don't we push for it to be reduced 10 miles per hour countrywide? Why not 20? Why not mandate speed bumps every 50 yards? Because there is a point where we decide that the risk of death is acceptable in order to gain the obvious good of people and goods moving quickly from location to location. In some basic way, we all understand and accept this. If you've ever driven above the speed limit, you actually made the judgment that the law didn't accept enough risk of death. This is a fact of life in almost everything, especially when it comes to economics, which is about trade-offs at all times. Saying this is not the flu is an incomplete answer when people remark that we do not treat the flu this way, knowing full well it kills 50,000 people a year. Of course, we can prepare and vaccinate for the flu, and we're familiar with how to treat it. And yet, 50,000 people die annually, and no one ever heard of social distancing until a few weeks ago. Those 50,000 per year are in many of the same vulnerable classes as people who are dying from coronavirus. We do not close up shop on the economy to make sure the person near you at the bar doesn't infect you. You don't infect your nephew, and he doesn't infect your grandmother. It's not because it doesn't happen. Saying coronavirus is more deadly or more transmissible does not refute that we are making the exact same moral judgment already. There's nothing reasonable about this conversation. When your first instinct is to cancel someone who disagrees with you or has another point of view, there is no conversation. There's merely a digital wall of sound and lettered fury signifying nothing. When you think rage tweeting around the clock, screaming everyone else but you and the people who agree with you is responsible for countless deaths, you've lost the plot. People no longer seem interested in constructing a society together. They're concerned with positive feedback on social media and making sure that everyone does what they say, by force if necessary. So what is reasonable? My goal with this podcast is to attempt, at least... To provide enough middle ground for people to stop thinking of their neighbors and fellow countrymen as terrible people. They aren't. I don't care if people love each other or agree. I just want them to stop hating each other. Both sides feel so morally right and refuse to budge. That may work in the moment to win a vote or an election, but it's not worth it. It's tearing the country apart. Let's talk about what reasonable is not. Reasonable is not pretending that someone meant the worst possible interpretation of what they said rather than the best. That's not a call out, it's cruelty. There are decent NRA members and media companies profiting from sensational coverage of mass shooters. There are people profiting off war and politicians lining the pockets of their friends and donors with money allotted for homeless shelters. There is no right side, there is only right and wrong. No one has a monopoly on these. There are real racists who should be condemned by everyone, just as there are people exploiting racial division for their own benefit. If you don't believe me, look at Jussie Smollett and those happy to accept his story without scrutiny. Reasonable is not assuming a conclusion on limited facts and then filling in all the holes with amateur pop psychology about what the person was surely thinking based on their other tweets. Sorry, but no. I don't trust a 23-year-old gender studies major who's published two blogs on Jezebel when she tells me that some football player is an unrepentant homophobe because she found a tweet of his from junior high. Reasonable isn't a hot take for clicks. Faint-hearted media figures clutching their cats in Williamsburg, punching you-have-to-trust-experts into their phones and clicking send shouldn't be giving lectures on economic policy 10 minutes later, but they are whatever pushes their agenda forward. These are the most scared people on earth. Their lives are nothing but comfort. Their opinions are in service of maintaining that comfort. They, after all, are not the ones laid off during this crisis, but they will be. The longer the financial crisis lasts, the faster people cancel their subscriptions and the sooner their columns on how coronavirus is hardest on women while men get it more and die from it more often, will be considered unnecessary. But no, not now. Now is the time for being afraid. Being very afraid. Reasonable is not the quote-unquote objective news, only highlighting the stories and facts that make one side look bad. It can be true that the stories they're telling are factual in nature. But as those stories and facts exist as part of a narrative, they can be telling a false one if they're not supplemented with the facts that dispute that narrative. But this again is standing operating procedure. Fox News spins a narrative where Trump is always right and everyone else is wrong. CNN and MSNBC tell you that Trump is always wrong and everyone else is right. They're supposed to be telling us the facts in an objective manner so we can decide for ourselves what to think. Instead, they present the desired moral conclusion and then backfill the story with whatever facts support that desired conclusion. That anyone believes this intellectually bankrupt method is informing them is only an indication of the comfort we find in being told what we already think. This is the exact method by which self-help gurus become millionaires. Reasonable is not going off the rails on the crazy train just because everyone else is. You don't have to be scared just because the people you follow on Twitter are. Our parents, grandparents, and ancestors have lived through far worse than this and come back stronger. Take note of these small creatures with their weak constitutions. Remember who they are. Never let them lead you. Oppose them leading anyone else. They are cowards. We were not promised a world of ease and comfort. These people will live through this crisis and emerge having done nothing with themselves other than stare at a screen and let the small, fearful child inside them run their lives for all these weeks or months. That is literally pathetic. On this podcast, I want to try to move both extremes back to normalcy, not by convincing either they're wrong, only that they're not all right. Because being not all right allows for uncertainty, which allows for acceptance of dissension. I will eventually argue that the second amendment is for the right, what the abortion issue is for the left. A slippery slope whose cliff's edge starts the moment you take a step out of your current position. It doesn't have to be this way. It's my belief that if you want to test how reasonable you are, try to find the polar opposite view from yours and argue for that. No, not on Huffington Post. I'm not trying to get you canceled. Just in your head. Let's say you believe Trump is extraordinarily dumb. I'm sympathetic to that view. But instead of it just accepting its truth and hating anyone who disagrees, explore your mind and try to argue for the opposite, that Trump is an extraordinary genius. If you find anything supporting that, congratulations, you've just become sympathetic. It is possible, even likely, that the man has a high intelligence that works in service of nothing but his own advancement. Admitting this can enable you to understand him and how he acts and speaks. It's not the same as admitting he's right. But pretending that this is all some random series of events or a ploy set up by Russian intelligence agencies doesn't empower you to solve the problem. It only makes you look insane for denying reality. It might be the case that Trump doesn't read books and doesn't understand almost anything about the current crisis. That doesn't mean that the man who figured out how to win the American presidency is dumber than the Bernie Sanders voter blogging for Teen Vogue in a Bushwick apartment complaining that they don't know why people who are supposed to be social distancing are going to the restaurant while they pet their cat, nervous and masturbating on cue whenever Anthony Fauci says something at odds with what Trump said. There is no end to this if we continue down this path. This isn't new. Trump is not the cause of this division. He is a symptom. We were already divided. That's both sides' fault. There aren't many people on the right trying to oppress women and minorities. There aren't many people on the left trying to take away the freedom of speech. These are extremists. Most people are normal. They want to be spoken to honestly. They don't need preaching or condescension. And when they get it, they will oppose it. Let's find a way to not make everyone our enemy. What I want ultimately is for people to act with uncertainty in situations about which they have no certainty. This is the most basic form of modesty, but we live in a society that incentivizes bombast in service of clicks, where we trigger dark emotion in our readers, listeners, viewers to garner their loyalty, anger, fear, self-righteousness, victimhood, separation. And the end goal is to reach some level of monetizable notoriety and earn a living as a quote unquote public figure. In personal situations, people who act like this are on a path toward rejection from the relationship or group. Professing certainty in situations about which you have no certainty is one of the most immediately repellent characteristics a person can possess. Yet somehow we promote these figures to prominence specifically for the way they're able to connect with you in direct opposition to the other i'm not interested in proving you wrong or even changing your mind my interest is getting you to understand that you are uncertain about everything this won't only be about political issues it'll be about culture as well the freedom of thought is a beautiful thing for so many people this freedom is given away in trade for the approval of one's peers That is a sad feature of a materialistic popular culture, one dominated by likes on social media, the constant competition in raising the attractiveness of one's pixeled avatar, the reconstruction of self as brand, and the resentful silence so many truly free thinkers experience when they simply do not agree. We're expected to give our own taste and agency over to the purveyors of commercialized art, music, and literature. We're expected to believe the corporate news and feel the correct feelings about the information we gain. That is assuming, of course, that we had the opportunity to develop taste and agency in the first place. I'm not looking to accept or worship anyone's sacred cows. I'm here to slaughter them and show you they were never really there. for tonight's broadcast.